Support for Charlotte Talks comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, pledging to help end child hunger in the Carolinas through ongoing support of Second Harvest Food Bank of Metrolina. Details about this initiative at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. This is Equilibrium, a WFAE public conversation on race and equity in Charlotte. I'm Mary C. Curtis. Eight years ago, in 2014, Charlotte ranked 50 out of 50 of the nation's largest metro areas in an upward mobility study from Harvard University. The Land of Opportunity study painted a bleak outlook for Charlotte's poorest residents, but served as a wake-up call for city officials and community members. Leaders took action to address and correct the trends in mobility. Money was raised, programs were launched, and attention was paid to areas like pre-K education, affordable housing, and transportation. So, where are we now? In this special conversation, we've gathered local leaders and experts to look at how far we've come and what still needs to happen to achieve upward mobility in the Queen City. We're live in front of an audience at Project 658 in Charlotte. And joining me is Vi Lyles, Mayor of Charlotte. Last year, she announced the Mayor's Racial Equity Initiative in Charlotte, a public-private partnership dedicated to creating a more equitable Charlotte. Sherry Chisholm is here. She's the Executive Director of Leading on Opportunity Council. This Charlotte organization works to create transformational change in our community's economic mobility outcomes. We're also joined by Sharice Blackman from Westside Community Land Trust, an organization that works to create equity through affordable housing in West Charlotte and beyond. Daniel Valdez is with us. He's the director of external affairs at Welcoming America. And we're joined by Eli Portillo. He's the Assistant Director of Outreach and Strategic Partnerships at UNC Charlotte's Urban Institute. And Eli has worked extensively on the topic of transportation. Thank you all for joining us. Now, while we want to look forward to action in tonight's conversation, we're gonna begin briefly by taking a step back to 2014, eight years ago, when the results of the Land of Opportunity Study, or the CHETI Study, were released. They put Charlotte 50 out of 50 in last place when it came to upward mobility in that region. So, Mayor Lyles, as someone with long time and very deep ties to the community, you weren't mayor at the time, but what, what was it like to see the results of that study, and what was the reaction here by citizens and city leaders? Well, first, let me say thank you to um, WFAE for even having the audacity to talk about race and equity. Um, there are many places in this country that would not dare to touch this topic. It would be too sensitive or too divisive. But one of the things about Charlotte, just like the Chetty study, this conversation is about what we want to be and who we are as a city, as a community, and how do we continue to address tough problems and have open discourse and participation in it. So thank you for all of the panelists that are here, for you, Mary, the whole team for being here. I remember sitting in the convention center at the time when the study was presented. And I'd had even, I think, a little bit of a hint or preview of it. Um, and I believe 
that the community did face a moment of like complete awareness, not unawareness, awareness that we were being talked about in a national study by very, very reputable scholars from Harvard, okay? And we were going to figure out what it meant. And that's how I think this whole initiative started. And I'm looking forward to how it continues today. I'm not as close to all of the leading on opportunity work as I was in the past. But I think that we've been steadfast in setting the goals that we want to have. Housing, a good wage, and a place that you can have safety and a quality of life that you would like to have. And I think that's what leading on opportunity is about. Well, let's, uh, Sherry, let's turn to you because I know that your organization grew out of the need highlighted in the Chetty study. So if you could explain the mission of your organization and how it grew out of it and how are you progressing? Absolutely. <clears throat> Pardon me. Thank you for having us and thank you to WFAE. Um, for having this conversation. As the mayor said, and as you said, Mary, uh, the Chetty Report for some folks in our community was a wake-up call. For others, it was a finally people are paying attention. Either way, it created collective consciousness and enabled, um, uh, created a table for us all to have the same conversation. With that collective consciousness, leaders in our community wanted to make sure that it didn't come, become a report that sat on the shelf, but that we made it actionable for Charlotte. And so a group of community leaders came together to form the task force, which eventually created the task force report that's specific to Charlotte and lists nearly 100 recommendations for what we as a community can do such that we are not 50 out of 50 anymore and that opportunity is not relegated to your zip code. Leading on Opportunity was then the nonprofit organization that was created to make sure that that report lived on. Fast forward five years later, Leading on Opportunity is an organization that seeks to provide the support at a systems level for direct service providers, whether they be nonprofit organizations, government agencies, or business organizations that want what is in the task force report to be true. And so what we do is we provide the facilitation, the strategy, the data, and the policy if we're doing systems work to make sure that folks who are in the community doing this work have the support they need to do it well. Yeah, how do you measure that? Yeah, so that's a really popular question now, right? <laughs> um, and I appreciate the question. Um, the Chetty report came out and it was based on information uh, from zip codes and tax information and it gave us a snapshot and a point in time to what had been going on. But what we know to be true is that issues of racial inequity, of systemic inequity, have existed in our country for generations upon generations. Um, and it's not new to us, but we're responding in a new way. So when it comes to us measuring progress, yes, there will be the long-term indicators 30 years from now, but at Leading on Opportunity, we're focused on those interim measures of success. And to do that, it takes two parts. One, of course, we need the deep data and subject matter expertise from folks like Eli and Urban Institute who research this in a very deep way. What we're bringing from Leading on Opportunity that is unique and very vital to the conversation is the community perspective. I think there's been a lot of conversation about are we still 50 out of 50, are we 47, are we 39? Honestly, that doesn't matter mm -hmm. when folks who are living in poverty still don't have access yeah. to the education they deserve, to the housing they deserve, they're living in food deserts. And so what we're looking to when we measure success is to go to the community and ask them to tell us, mm -hmm. has your life improved in demonstrated ways 
piece and how can we then package that as a way to inform what we'll be doing next. Great. Um, Sharice, I want to turn to you because when we talk about persistent challenges in the community, one of them is certainly affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And it has only become more pronounced as Charlotte has grown. So what strategies are you working with at the West Side Community Land Trust? And tell us a little bit about your organization, what you're doing, and, and what, you, 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 what we need to do to get ahead of this persistent problem. Yeah, um, so at the Westside Community Land Trust, we focus on creating permanently affordable housing with community-centered development in West Charlotte and beyond. Um, and I think one of the most important strategies um, that we implement is the Community Land Trust model itself. Um, this model is empirically proven. Um, it's evidence-based. There are over 300 land trusts across the nation that have been implementing this since the civil rights era. Um, and we are one of the only models that exist to ensure permanent affordability and perpetuity without additional subsidy, which I think is very critical um, so that we can not only use, utilize and leverage investments today for housing today, but to ensure affordability both now and in the future for generations to come. Um, also, one of the strategies that we leverage, much to what um, Sherry mentioned earlier, is we are completely community-centered in process and practice. So in word and deed, this isn't just a rhetoric thing for us, this is our core, who we are at our core. Um, and so we have a tripartite board of directors where individuals that are most proximate to the challenges maintain the power within the their communities. We also have a membership base and anything that we seek to do through our organization must be approved by those individuals. And so through that type of model, we're able to maintain our proximity um, to the challenges and to develop responsive solutions versus prescriptive solutions. Um, and we also focus on co-creating those solutions with um, the experts, which we see as the residents who live in these communities and are affected by these challenges. And so so that, I think, um, are a couple of the strategies that we use and we leverage um, within our organization in addition to um, innovative development as well. So we started with house moves um, because that was the path of least resistance. So homes were donated to us. We moved those homes across town, renovated them, sold them affordably. Um, and we also started to implement an accessory dwelling unit model where our homeowners can not only purchase a land trust home affordably and build wealth um, through home ownership, but they're able to also build wealth by having a rental property right in their backyard. And so we've learned that these things are not only possible, but they're very critical um, in how we approach equitable, affordable housing development. That's quite a model. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, your organization's yeah, you could <laughs> applaud that. <laughs> Very creative strategies. Um, now, your organization's name is Welcoming America, which single, signals inclusion. Yeah. So Charlotte is a very diverse uh, community. We think about the black and white paradigm, but of course it's much more diverse in many ways, uh, represented by many, many groups. So you're dealing with newcomers who are moving here from all over the world. So what are some of the biggest challenge, challenges that newcomers face, and what is your organization providing to make uh, their welcome real? Yeah, so I uh, thank, thank you all for having me uh, here today. Um, you know, Welcoming America works with local communities across the country to help them with their welcoming and belonging and inclusion efforts. Um, the city of Charlotte, um, through their Office of Mobility, Equity, and Immigrant Inclusion has been working with us for a number of years in thinking about what does immigrant inclusion work look like in the city of Charlotte. 
uh, and what we can do to lay the groundwork and the foundation for uh, that kind of work to continue to happen. Um, Charlotte um, has grown tremendously over the past 20 years. We know that um, certainly has changed uh, in demographics. And um, a lot of the, the report uh, that came out, you know, the Chetty study, um, a lot of that was around uh, the black and white um, paradigm that, that exists in this community. And so it's important for us to make sure that we're looking also at our current trends and demographics so that we make sure that we are uh, adding that lens to the efforts that so many organizations here locally are leading around this work because we don't want to end up in the same place 20, 30 years from now when we're thinking about um, those those uh, families who, who came to, to Charlotte and weren't able to uh, work within sort of the, the, the community and be part of all aspects of, of the local community. So it's important for us to, to think about that as well. And one other thing that I want to sort of mention as well in terms of our work at Welcome Me America is that uh, while we certainly focus on newcomers and what that means, particularly for immigrants and refugees, we know that for a long time, particularly black communities have never felt included or welcomed in their local communities. And so we can't have wel truly welcoming communities if we're also not looking about, uh, about those, those communities that, um, that have been here for a really long time that have not felt that inclusion and that belonging effort. So uh, it goes hand in hand, and I think it's, it's a recognition uh, of that work, but also thinking about what are, what are the changing demographics and how can we make sure that we're planning for the long-term uh, infrastructure work that's needed around that. A lot of work to be done, yes, right? Absolutely. Yes. We'll get to you in a minute, uh, Eli, but uh, we're going to have more of our conversation in a moment. So we're going to take a little break now. This is Equilibrium, a WFAE public conversation. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, committed to Mazda's focus to ensure every element of a car is designed around the driver. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. We're back. I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equilibrium, a WFAE public conversation on race and equity in Charlotte. We're live at Project 658 in Charlotte with Mayor Vi Lyles, Sherry Chisholm from Leading on Opportunity, Sharice Blackman from the West Side Community Land Trust, Daniel Valdez from Welcoming America, and Eli Portillo from the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. And we'll start off this next segment with, with Eli, who's gonna talk about the issue of transportation. Now, the issue of effective transportation solution grows out of housing and so many other issues in many ways. Because of past practices, the city still reflects the reality of a segregated past. And that's affected transportation. Is it where it's needed by all neighborhoods and citizens in Charlotte? Is it close to employment opportunities? Could you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I think transportation and transit uh, is a really interesting topic because it touches on so many other things. Transportation projects have divided neighborhoods. Uh, the highways that came through here uh, cut straight through many black communities. 
At the same time, some of them were rerouted to go around white communities. So they've baked inequality into it in some ways. Transportation and transit is uh, in many ways highly racialized and tied to how much money you have. Something like one in eight people, uh, households overall in the Charlotte region don't have a car. But if you look at the lowest um, quintile, the lowest earners, it's close to one in three. So transportation is this issue that um, reflects and perpetuates a lot of the inequalities we've seen. Because Charlotte is so sprawling, larger land area than all of New York City, five boroughs, we have uh, a really auto-dependent city. So if you don't have a car, if you don't have an effective transit option, it's hard to get to a job. It's hard to get to a doctor's appointment. That's something we've been struggling with for years in this city. They've uh, tried to make adjustments at CATS, but the bus system and in particular continues to struggle, especially post-COVID. At the same time, I think transit and the conversations we have about building our transit system really reflect this kind of deep-rooted tension in Charlotte where we want the shiny new things, we want to grow. Charlotte, I don't think it's any secret, is a very uh, boosterish city. You know, we love our skyline, we love our, uh, most of our rankings, not the 50th out of 50, obviously. <laughs> um, but at the same time, with transit and transportation, there are worries about displacement. With the conversation around the Silver Line, uh, there are concerns about more people uh, being forced to leave neighborhoods in the east and west sides if that really helps uh, development blow up even more there. So we want the shiny new thing, but at the same time, we often um, see these concerns about equity. And I think that's not just for transportation and transit, that's really baked into the way Charlotte has grown. What kind of progress is the city making on having these kinds of conversation, conversations that meet that balance? So I think it's on a few different axes. You know, there's the Charlotte Moves plan, which is being discussed right now. Um, $13.5 billion plan would require a sales tax increase. I know that, you know, that's kind of grinding its way through, perhaps. It's not grinding. Wait a minute now. <laughs> it might be slow, but we're not grinding. It's, uh, it's uh, sl slowly progressing, perhaps, then? Thank you. <laughs> You gotta be optimistic about these things, if, especially in my seat anyway. <laughs> so there's the public transit discussion that we're having as this community, but at the same time, I think uh, the mayor and other representatives have said that that's not going to solve all our transportation issues, because even if we uh, build these new transit lines, we're still such an auto-dependent city. So I think we have to really talk more about where are we building services, where are we building housing, where are we um, enabling people to live and work, not just where are we building transit and transportation because we're not gonna solve all these challenges just coming at it from that angle because it's so deep and systemic. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I would love to, to add to what uh, Eli said. I am fairly new, actually really new to Charlotte um, and come from a community that also ranks really low on the, the, in the Chetty study. What I can say that's true about Charlotte is there's no shortage of conversation. She said, where's the conversation happening? In Charlotte, there are conversations around transportation, around um, college and career readiness, around early, um, uh, uh, early education, et cetera, et cetera. That is really beautiful and something for us to be really proud of. Unfortunately, a lot of those conversations are happening in silos. And so where I think we are now as a community is really to think collaboratively about how that safety net really creates an environment or a community for an individual or a young person to be successful. 
transportation won't solve it alone, early education won't solve it alone, but together, if we're considering these things in unison, that's what leads to collective long-term change. Yeah. I think now would be a good time. I like it when the panel mixes it up, don't you? Um, I want to get the mayor back in, since you had something to say before, to talk about the strategic mobility plan, the racial equity initiative, and all the things that are happening, because you, you said, yes, we are making progress. How will these lead to a more equitable Charlotte? Well, that's going to be a big question, but I'm going to take a couple of points here to make. Um, Definitely. You know, when we talk about the silos, I completely agree and understand that. But the foundation for some of these things have got to be strengthened and ready. And that really requires tough decision making. It means that we have to have consensus on what we're trying to do. It means we have to have commitment to fund these things. We're great at short-term success. Mm -hmm. um, when the problems that we're talking about now require a long-term funding scenario. It requires commitment to the people in this community, and it requires that we engage the community deeply in these discussions. Mm -hmm. These are very hard things to do. I think we're up for it. So let me go to transportation, for example. The medical school is gonna be built in two years. They're gonna have a campus, 10,000 jobs. 5,000 of those jobs will not require a four-year degree. We have a job desert on the east side down Albemarle Road. How quickly can we get that rap bus rapid transit line to come down Independence Boulevard and get to the medical campus so people can have a job? All of this needs integration. I think these collaborations are important, but the integration of thinking about what we're doing now in transportation, what we're doing in land use and opportunities is so very important. The mayor, I'm gonna go back to the mayor's racial equity program. I think that we've forgotten why we did this. We've forgotten about George Floyd and the protests. You've forgotten, we've often not talked enough about how we had protests in our own cities. We forget we have 41 low-performing schools in this community, and COVID did nothing but expose even more and deeper disparities in health care, child care. All of this is going on at this one time, and yet we still have the issue of coming together to build a foundation that is equitable in terms of the ability for people to live in the city with, with a wage. Mm -hmm that makes it possible for them to be here. I, you know, I, my first time for mayor, my slogan was, if you work in Charlotte, you ought to be able to afford to live in Charlotte. I quickly disbanded that idea when we started seeing some of this development around and we weren't able to keep up with providing enough affordable housing. So let me go back. Um, I get on a little bit of a stump speech here because I care so deeply about it. Um, when you think about the integration of all of these efforts and initiatives, I mean, when we started working with the land trust, nobody knew what it was, but you have done a phenomenal job, and you know this, and we have contributed land, you have made it, we have bent rules, things that this city would never have done before. Government has had to become a lot more flexible, reaching out to extend itself beyond the traditional keep people safe, pick up the garbage, and make sure that the toilets flush. 
That's what we used to talk about. We don't talk about that anymore. So let's talk about um, racial equity from my experience of um, all that we have gone through. I think that we failed to realize how close we were to um, not being able to sustain after COVID some of the major initiatives that we have or major institutions we have. Take Johnson C. Smith University. This is a private HBCU in our community. And during COVID, they did not have the enrollment that was necessary to actually have a real strong financial and sustainable plan. And if you look at that university and what it means to this community, what it means to the west side, we had to do something about it. So out of the $250 million, $80 million will go to Johnson C. Smith University. And, and we all know that once you do something like that, other money follows. But we have to show some successes. So this is an action stage for us. It is a transformation of this university. And we know that the private sector has agreed to support those students with internships during the summer. People forget that when you're the first year, first person in your family to go to college and summer comes, you're going home and you don't know whether there's gonna be a place for you at home or you have a job or you even have the food that's sustaining you during your time as your freshman year. This community has stepped up and said, we're gonna provide internships and jobs for the Johnson C. Smith students every summer. We're gonna talk about the skills that they can acquire and make sure that if they are comfortable and agree to what they want to do and we have a place that they can do it, they will do it in Charlotte. That is a big step for us. The next thing that we have to do in the racial, um, mayor's racial program is around the corridors of opportunity. And these are our neighborhoods that um, have been left behind. And we are never gonna get to equity if we don't bring everybody forward. That's what equity means, is that every, you don't have, you're not defined by your race anymore. That you don't have determinants saying, well, this determinant impacts you because you're a person of color. So success is when we can create small businesses, neighborhoods that everybody's proud to live in. Not necessarily meaning that you're rich, it's just that you feel like you are at home in your space. That's what we need to do. And then the final thing that um, the program addresses is having black and brown people be successful in this business community. The number of opportunities that we see for growth and development in the world of commerce should be extended to black and brown people. But to do that, you have to provide a pathway. This isn't gonna change overnight, I know this, but we've had generations of inequity. So let's think about how we move the generations forward coming with equitable opportunities. And I hope that people realize that this is not just a moment in time. This is gonna take years. But if we don't do it now, what will we do? What will we have? And I don't want to be that community that didn't grab the brass ring when we had the opportunity to do so. Thank you. Um, Charisse. Uh, one the mayor mentioned about you should be able to live in this community and how tough that is. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the issue that we all see of the gentrification in minority communities. 
Uh, it doesn't seem to be slowing down. We talked a little bit before the show on that. So what, what is the, tr the land trust doing? And what do folks in the community have to say about what is going on and what needs to be done to maintain the character and home ownership in these communities? Yeah, I think one of the um, main things that we hear from residents is that this is not new. Um, so a lot of the communities that we are serving that are currently gentrifying are historically black communities um, where individuals that have lived there for generations have also experienced displacement from urban renewal and redlining and such. Um, and so I think that's really how the land trust was born was um, based on the resilience and strength of community members who said not this time, <laughs> that we're gonna fight back this time, that we wanna maintain our homes and our communities. Um, I also often hear stories about their neighborhoods being unrecognizable. So there's a lady, Pernice, who lives in Enderley Park, and she talks about how one day she was riding the city bus, and she looked up, and for a second, didn't recognize where she was, and almost missed her stop because she didn't recognize her own community. Um, and so residents talk a lot um, about that. We hear stories of individuals that live in some of our communities that um, have shifted to month to month leases where um, sometimes their landlords give them a week or less to vacate a property so that they can sell it um, or flip it or do whatever it is that they want to do to um, be able to leverage the current market. And so can you imagine um, being a low income individual and having to move your entire life in less than a week? Um, so these are stories that we hear all the time across our community, stories of displacement, but also like stories of resilience because amidst all of that, we also hear individuals saying, I wanna own a home. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a pipeline of home buyers. We don't list our homes on the MLS, so we, we um, we are very integral to our value of creating staying power for residents. And so individuals in these communities come to us and sign up. And we have people all the way um, aged all the way up to 65 years old, where this will be their first time purchasing a home, but believe that they have the opportunity to be able to do so in the communities they've called home for so long because of the work that we're doing there. Um, and so really what we are contributing um, is staying power for these residents who have lived here for long periods of time, um, who typically have um, homes that have been passed down from generation to generation that they are now not able to afford due to um, rising tax values. Um, and so we create home ownership opportunities. So this is an asset that they have that they own. Um, so nobody's gonna sell it from up under you. This is your home and you can be here for as long as you choose to be here. And that's what we contribute to the solution. And you're seeing some progress even with this trend of these large companies and funds buying up homes uh, for cash and your model is working? Yeah, so the model is working. Um, it's incremental, <laughs> so we're moving slow. We are grinding a little bit in Eli's terms, <laughs> um, but we are making some um, progress. Um, I will say, just to speak to that, that I think that sometimes 
So I don't want to take away from the fact that the challenges that we're facing in our community are very complex, um, but sometimes I think they're also very simple, right? Like gentrification is really just, you know, basic economics, supply and demand. Mm -hmm. And so really in a wealthy city, how can we leverage the funds and the wealth here to be able to get in control of some of this land to ensure that we can maintain affordability? Um, at the end of the day, if we're able to um, gain control purchase the land, have the buying power that we need, um, then we can shift units, we can shift properties to affordability and meet the demand that's there for affordable units that has been proven time and time again. Um, so it is possible for us to be able to compete. It's just where is the will? Um, where is the funding <laughs> to be able to support that? Can we create that consensus um, as the mayor mentioned and can we shift from rhetoric to action? Mm. Great. I, I th she was looking at you about talking about the funding and the will and well, <laughs> it's, it, it's, well it's true. Yeah. Uh, money matters yeah. if we're going to support change. Well, we have much more to discuss, and we're going to come back after a break with more. I'm Mary C. Curtis. This is Equilibrium, a WFAE public conversation. Mary. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, dedicated to those who believe a car should stir one's emotions and deliver a heightened state of driving. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. We're back. I'm Mary C. Curtis, and you're listening to 90.7 WFAE, and this is Equilibrium, a WFAE public conversation on race and equity in Charlotte. Now, I know, Sherry, that you had uh, something to add a little bit to what Sharice was talking about. Yeah, and I, I, I'll try to be brief. The work that Sharice is doing is phenomenal, um, so vital and necessary. And I, w I wanted to speak to your question about progress because she can't, she can't do it alone. Um, and to say we often talk about, you know, they can't afford to buy a house or those people over there. It's, it's me. It's proximate to me. I am 37, I have an advanced degree, so does my husband, one of those from an Ivy League institution, and we are struggling to find a home that is affordable to us. I think we think about it being over there or something those people are dealing with, but Charlotte is quickly becoming expensive for all of us. And so while, and we want, <laughs> we too want access to opportunity, and it would be wonderful if we could be with black people in that opportunity. And so while Sharice can't do it alone, we need policy to support that. So as we think about the work of the 2040 plan, for example, it's important that folks are able to stay in their home, but we also think about mixed income environments, knowing that from the report, if someone born into low means is placed in a high opportunity neighborhood, their economic mobility exponentially grows. So just thinking about the programs we need now, but the policy we need forever to make it true for everyone. Great, yes. Yeah. I love your point. It's not them, it's all of us. Yeah, it's all of us. They're all of us. Uh, Daniel, speaking of that, your work and your local initiatives involve many areas. You do advocacy and education efforts uh, on issues like civic engagement, immigrant rights, racial justice, health disparities, economic mobility, taking in so many of these conversations we're having tonight. So tell us a little about the local initiatives and how you are establishing priorities and strategies and action. Yeah, absolutely. So Welcoming America works across the country and I've had the opportunity uh, to see this kind of work unfold, not just here in Charlotte, but in so many other cities. And so I think that's one of the things that we've been able to uh, really uh, 
encourage local folks here is to uh, learn from other communities and what they're doing in all these areas. That's very important. Um, one of the things that um, I've really seen over the past um, eight years or so um, has been a greater um, greater emphasis on this, uh, this the city office of equity, mobility, uh, and, and immigrant integration. Um, and it has led to greater coordination uh, across immigrant and Lat Latino serving organizations. It certainly um, has led to the city developing a language access plan that allows for folks to access services uh, in their language and sort of set that baseline. Um, and has worked with other cities across the country to coordinate some of these um, ac access to language efforts as well. Um, certainly COVID um, has uncovered a lot of things that we all know in terms of what are the disparities, both in terms of health, education, workforce. And, um, and so the city um, has been working to try to bring together uh, through, through this office um, a comprehensive approach to this work. Um, when it was mentioned earlier about this task force report and how multi-sector collaboration was happening, that's something that Welcoming America uh, works with local communities. We have to bring together the public sector, the private sector, uh, government to really work on, on these issues uh, and create strategic plans that really address the need. Um, but it needs to be informed by the local community. And so a lot of times when we're having conversations in a lot of rooms, um, like the one we're having here today, right, how, how, how many are the folks, you know, how are the folks that we're trying to address, uh, where are they and how are we making sure that we're getting their input uh, into some of the, the solutions and the ideas that we have. So it's important for us to uh, continue to keep that in mind as we, as we think about um, this work and, and how we move forward um, as a city. So um, I think that those are, those are some of the ways in which we are, uh, we're working with the city of Charlotte and some of the work that they're doing. Um, we're gonna have the uh, Welcoming Interactive, which is our national conference here in Charlotte in May. And so that means that we're, ha we're gonna have over 400 practitioners from across the country come to Charlotte um, to share their, their work that they're doing around immigrant inclusion work, but also to hear about the work that's happening here locally mm -hmm. in Charlotte. So um, I think that's a, that's a huge win for the city. It means that uh, folks are be able to, to come here and to see what's happening. Um, and also to understand what are the challenges and the barriers because we can't just talk about some of the great things that are happening. We have to talk about the challenges and the barriers because those are the same challenges and barriers that other cities are facing across the country. And it's through conversations and through the exchange of ideas that we'll be able uh, to get that much closer um, to having more equity in our communities around all, all of these issues as well. Um, and the last thing I'll mention is that the city of Charlotte um, is going through uh, what we call the Certified Welcoming Program, which is a program uh, for local city and county governments to see if, the, if they're really welcoming in terms of their policies and programs at the local level. There are currently 12 communities across the country that are certified welcoming and eight in the pipeline that are going through this audit process, the, the city of Charlotte being one of those. Um, and so I think it speaks to um, the elevation that, uh, that this Office of Mobility, Equity, and Immigrant Inclusion has had in the city um, to really think about these broader issues around immigrant inclusion work uh, at the local level. Thank you, Daniel. I think it's interesting you're talking about cities learning from one another. And it makes me, it brings up the question, as we're looking at the different models and what works in Charlotte, are there any other communities that we're looking at that we're saying, well, we don't want to be like that, or this is a model and we want to copy that? Are we, are we taking bits and pieces from other communities to see what might work for us? Well, that's an easy question, I think, for Eli and I. It's, it's done all the time. Um, the, the way that government works nowadays is much more driven by data 
than you can ever imagine. I mean, we can count a lot of things and, and describe, you know, traffic, for example, um, is a really data-rich source for how we do long-term planning. The 2040 plan, in and of itself, is almost a data document um, and with conclusions based upon that. Um, when we talk about, um, we're, we have a commission in the city right now dealing with displacement and what kind of initiatives, and we talked about we're the 15th fastest growing city, so what are the other, what are the 14 in front of us doing? And to actually go in and visit with them when possible and to get that information from them so that we can choose what practice works for us. But Eli, I know the university is a real partner in this for our efforts. You want to yeah. speak to that, Eli? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of things in other cities, um, like you said, that we can take bits and pieces of. You know, I know Austin is doing a large uh, transit plan, and they've put, um, I think, $300 million, I want to say, towards anti-displacement as part of that. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to proactively get ahead uh, of the gentrification concerns by doing things like land banking around transit lines when they're being built. I know that there's uh, discussions about that in Charlotte right now. Mm -hmm. I think that there are uh, different initiatives like making transit uh, fare free or um, spending a lot more on uh, local affordable housing subsidies that Charlotte can look at. But one challenge that I think we have to acknowledge is that Charlotte uh, exists in the legislative framework of North Carolina. Um, if you, you know, spend much time in city government meetings, uh, it just comes up a lot that we are uh, Dillon's rule state and some things that uh, local city leaders might like to do, like mandating uh, certain amounts of affordable housing uh, be built in new developments or developers paying a fee, um, you know, aren't possible in the uh, power that we have right now delegated from the state legislature. So that's something that always comes up as we look to other communities is um, we don't have the same uh, power structure and governance as some of our peer cities. Um, and we have to really work within that framework and figure out what can work in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. That's why the pop partnerships are so very important between the business community, the flat philanthropic community, because there are initiatives that are very important that we just can't do. And it's very difficult to explain to people that, um, that, you know, Raleigh, we have anything that we do Raleigh has to give us permission and I grew up with a dad who didn't give me a lot of permission <laughs> Sherry you well you talked about that a little bit um, that we really need a lot of partnerships uh, among organizations that do the work you do businesses because you don't want to duplicate that effort mm -hmm. because you all have the same goal mm -hmm. um, and you also actually uh, wrote a column hitting back a little bit at mm -hmm. some criticism that the Opportunity Task Force hasn't generated the changes it promises. And you made the point that the results would take time because systems of racial and economic segregation combined with public policies and business practices that divided our community were generations in the making. Mm -hmm. And they just won't disappear with the snap mm -hmm. of a finger. Mm -hmm. So could you speak to that and how you can make progress and measure it even while folks are impatient. Mm, sure. Um, as you said, Mary, this has happened over generations, over hundreds of years, systems of inequity and policy, um, intentionally or unintentionally in business practices and in our every way, everyday uh, life. So it's gonna take us generations to get out of it. 
That being said, we're about eight years now outside of the Chetty Report, and there is a lot we as Charlotte Mecklenburg need to be proud of. You know, the amount of funding that has been raised for particular initiatives, the coordination around initiatives, such as the Mayor's Racial Equity Initiative, um, the eradication of the pre-K waiting list, um, several nonprofits redefine their strategy and budgets to align towards the uh, task force report, which was directly aligned to equity. And again, we are continuing to have the conversation eight years post when the report came out. That in itself is a tremendous accomplishment, which is saying Charlotte is getting smarter and continuing to stay committed to the effort. Um, the second part of your question around measuring progress and to add um, to what Eli was saying, uh, and the mayor, data is what's going to be at the core of this. And not just numbers, but also qualitative, um, qualitative information from the community and learning from other areas that are doing the work. So one of the, the primary questions that I got when I came on board around measuring progress is what happened to the dashboard? Everyone wants to know what happened to the dashboard. And so what we're doing is what we're calling an opportunity index that will answer three questions through a portal. The first is, what progress have we made? How can we look at the data that's available to us in our community and nationally to gauge progress over the course of the past eight years? The second one is, where can I find XYZ data? When it comes to data, we talk about it all the time, and unfortunately, it's not available to everyone. So mm -hmm. how can we create a portal where nonprofits, government agencies, et cetera, can access the information they need? And then lastly, which gets to Eli's point is, what would happen if? So if Charlotte is looking to do something creative, well, how can we enter the information that we do have to give us some predictive information about what could happen? And so I think all of those things need to be at the center and everyone um, around that same information to make sure we're driving in the same direction, again, around collaboration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. we are, we're getting to the end of our hour. I can't believe it. This could go on forever. But I did want to, we looked at the past, and now I want to look at the future a little bit and ask you all to weigh in on if you're optimistic and why, at what do you see as Charlotte's future now that the city is starting to learn from and come to terms with its past? And um, yeah, what is your vision and what do you see? And are you optimistic and why? So, Daniel. Oh, I was hoping I would go last. <laughs> uh, just say, yeah, I agree with everyone, what uh. everyone has said here. Um, I'm not going to get you get away with that. Yeah, no, you know, I was reading an article that talked about there's 104 people that move in here every day, newcomers that we have to the city of Charlotte. And so I think about how, um, when I think about the city of Charlotte, I, I, uh, in the future, I think about a city um, that is very vibrant culturally and economically, um, that, um, that embraces diversity and what people bring to the table as far as their lived experiences and who they are. Uh, but that doesn't lose sight of the folks that have built this city mm. uh, and that have contributed to the city for a really long time and that we can do both. We, there's, the, the, we have to be able to live in, in a world where we can do both things. Welcome uh, newcomers, uh, help them um, it, be part and included in the cultural and economic vibrancy of the city, um, but also making sure that we're not losing sight of, of all of the communities yeah. that have been here for a really long time. Fine. So that's what I really think. What about that. you, Cherise? Yeah, so I think, um, 
I see our city and I am hopeful um, that we will have equitable communities where everyone um, has the opportunity to flourish. I think that we've had a lot of conversations. We have a lot of data. I think that we know what the challenge is. Um, and so I'm excited about the opportunity to shift from the conversations into like actionable solutions, um, recognizing the intersectionalities, um, as Sherry mentioned, and realizing that like it's very important for us um, to, to develop equitable communities, which is much different than just creating affordable housing or um, creating a healthcare facility, but how do we integrate all of that into one to ensure that everybody has access to the opportunities and the resources that they need to thrive? Yeah, Mayor Lyles. I would like to um, live in a city where if a child is born, that they will know that they will be able to succeed. Mm. Mm. Sherry. I am certainly hopeful. Um, honestly, as I look to my brothers and sisters on this panel, to the leaders, um, like the mayor who've led the way, we have what we need to do the work. It's remaining committed to it and moving towards action together. And quickly, Elon. <laughs> you know, in some ways, um, it's hard for me to just be uh, totally optimistic. I mean, I'm a former reporter, still a reporter at heart, so. <laughs> If you look at a lot of the metrics that we've seen already, like housing affordability, school achievement, uh, they've really gotten worse in some ways in the last few years. We're facing big challenges, and COVID, of course, has laid that bare. But at the same time, I mean, look at this panel up here. Um, I think I'm the whitest person up here, and I'm only half white. <laughs> We're up here with uh, a black female mayor of Charlotte, a diverse panel representing people from all over. And, you know, we've made incredible progress in this community. Great. Well, that's all the time we have. Now, this is certainly a conversation and an effort that will continue in our city and region. So I want to thank our panelists, Mayor Vi Lyles, Sherry Chisholm from Leading on Opportunity, Sharice Blackman from the West Side Community Land Trust, Daniel Valdez from Walking America, and Eli Portillo from the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this has been Equilibrium, a WFAE conversation on race and equity in Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Talks comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, pledging to help end child hunger in the Carolinas through ongoing support of Second Harvest Food Bank of Metrolina. Details about this initiative at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com.